Well, good morning. It is a privilege for me to be here. Uh, it was such a blessing this past weekend to serve alongside of so many of you um, and to have the joy of uh, just seeing uh, the, the people of God being edified and built up at the conference Ante Su Palabra. Um, so I'm just, just so blessed to, to be here and be able to bring the Word of God to you. Um, as we've already read our text, I, I'd ask you to find your way back there if you're not there in Matthew 17, Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. And it's a way of introducing our text um, since we don't really know each other that well. I uh, spent the first five years of my ministry working as a hospital chaplain at L.A. County Hospital, which is kind of what got me into Spanish ministry. Um, but it also got me thinking a lot about the relationship between our trials and our faith, uh, the relationship between suffering and our faith. And specifically, to put things in the language of the text that we're going to study this morning, the, the question that often arises in the hearts of many Christians is, well, who has more faith? Who's the, the more righteous Christian? You know, the, the father who has a, a son who, who maybe gets cancer and is really sick, and then this father, he's fasting and he's praying and, and God sort of miraculously in ways that we can't quite explain heals that, that boy and comes back to church and we're just like, wow, like what great faith that man must have had. And then we see a, another parent who maybe has a child who's sick and gets leukemia and the father and mother pray and fast and plead with the Lord to heal their child. And the Lord decides to take that child home. And maybe we don't say it out loud, but deep down somewhere in our heart, we, we kind of think, man, it's too bad they didn't have more faith so that God would heal their child. And if that's our understanding of the relationship between faith and suffering, it can be very damaging. It can be very hurtful to the Christian life. Um, and... I think this particular text that we're going to look at this morning, which is kind of the proof text for that type of thinking, when we interpret it correctly, is going to really help us uh, to understand um, how the Lord would, would have us face these trials. Uh, Matthew 17, obviously there in verse 20, has this famous verse that, that just this little bit of faith, like a mustard seed, you can just move mountains and do anything, kind of. Star Wars status, kind of move stuff around. And, and, and if you have enough faith, God is essentially then obligated to do what you want and to do your will. And we know as Christians that that can't be true because God is sovereign and it wouldn't even be good for me if God would do my will. Uh, but how do we understand this text? Uh, what is a right understanding of it? Um, I'd like to essentially kind of divide the, the paragraph into two sections. We're going to look at first, um, in the first number of verses, what powerless faith looks like. We see everyone in the story is powerless, except Jesus, of course. And then in the last verse, we're going to see what powerful faith looks like. And I understand you haven't been in Matthew recently, so just to give you a kind of a real, real general look of how the, the book um, lays out, 
The, the book of Matthew kind of divides itself into two sections, divided by the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In the first section of Matthew, in Matthew 1 through 11, Jesus is offering the kingdom to, to Israel. Uh, the kingdom is at hand. He's healing everyone. He's teaching everyone. There's huge crowds that are gathered about. He's doing miracles. He's feeding people. He's the Messiah, and he's proving it, fulfilling every single Old Testament prophecy about him, performing every miracle you can think of. And, and not just him, he gave his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples authority to do all the same miracles that he's doing. And so if you could turn back really quickly actually to Matthew chapter 10, there's a really, really critical paragraph here when Jesus sends out the 12 apostles. We're going to see that these 12 men had a, a type of authority that we do not and cannot ever have. These are, these are men that were directly sent out. That's what apostle means, to send. Directly sent out by Christ. Later on, they become witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Very unique gift and office here. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't ask them to do miracles. He doesn't suggest that they heal people and cast out demons. He commands it. He gives them an order. Notice there in verse 8, Matthew 10, 8, Jesus gives four imperatives. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. It's really important to understand this. If the apostles do not do this, what are they doing? They're disobeying Christ's direct command. They have the authority that he's given them, and they have the command to do these things. So, the apostles actually go out and they do. They heal all these people. They cast out demons. It's, it's spectacular. Actually, Luke records for us that, that Jesus, when the, when the disciples come back to him and they're all excited about all these things they're doing, he says, in fact, I saw Satan fall down from heaven. They had authority over all the powers of the enemy. Everything's great. But then, again, as I mentioned, in, in Matthew chapter 12, the Israelite leaders commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Israel rejects their Messiah, and the kingdom is no longer near. The king, Jesus, he sets his face toward Jerusalem, and he begins to teach his disciples that his mission all along, from before the foundation of the world, was actually to come and to die in the place of sinners like you and me. He was to be crucified, the Lamb of God slain as a substitute for the sins of his people. And from Matthew chapter 12 on, he's no longer teaching in big crowds. He's actually, in the big crowds, he's teaching in parables, and he's only really discipling and helping his apostles, the disciples. And in that context, where Jesus is having this very specific, limited ministry to his disciples, we find ourselves showing up in Matthew 17, where Jesus takes now an even more limited amount of them. He takes just Peter, James, and John, and he goes up onto a mountain, and he's transfigured before them. It must have been uh, an amazing experience, dumbfounding for Peter. They, they don't even know what to say. They're seeing Christ revealed in all of his glory. It's an experience that every believer in history would have loved to have witnessed. Like, who wouldn't want to be there on the Mount of Transfiguration? Right? I mean, to see Jesus, while we're still sinners here on earth, to see Jesus in all of his glory. Right? Is there anyone here that wouldn't want to see that? 
And that kind of helps us understand a, a part of the context that's, that's not explicit, that's implicit. That, that we have a trial here. A trial for whom? A trial for the nine guys <laughs> that are left at the base of the mountain. And we don't get a lot of the, the context, but the nine disciples left at the foot in the mountain, possibly dejected, possibly discouraged. They're waiting around, and a man with a demon-possessed son comes to them. No doubt he had heard that the twelve apostles had the authority to cast out demons and had had great success in casting out demons in the previous months. So he brings his son to them. And again, no details are given, but the nine apostles apparently say to this boy the things that they had said to all the other you know, demon-possessed people in the past. In the past, the demons always left. And in this case, the demon stays put. <laughs> and they're thinking, what should we do? Should we pray? Nah. Should we fast? Nah. They just give up. They think Jesus is going to come down the mountain soon and he can deal with this problem. We just give up. And that is where our story begins in verse 14 where we'll see the first point that everyone in this story has powerless faith. We have a father, we have a son, we have the crowd and the nine disciples. So again, by the time Jesus gets down the mountain, there's actually a huge crowd that's already gathered. It says in verse 14, when they came to the crowd. So you have all these people that have gathered around. They're not there because they love the Father. They're not there because they care about this boy. Uh, they're like in L.A., we have a lot of traffic caused oftentimes by accidents. And when an accident happens on the freeway, people come in this way. Traffic slows to stop of people going this way too. And why? Because they're all rubberneckers, right? We, we like look over, we want to see something juicy, you know, on the other side of the freeway. And it's terrible, but it's exactly what we see here. You know, that you have this crowd gathered around wondering like, I wonder if this demon's going to shriek when he comes out or what's going to happen like when Jesus comes down and sees the situation. But the father's obviously just completely desperate. He's on his knees. He's pleading with Jesus to have mercy. Luke tells us that this is his only son. And then he has these bizarre sort of lunatic, epileptic seizures. But they're not medical seizures like we understand them today. These are seizures that are actually produced by a demon that purposefully is casting him towards suicide. Text says it's sometimes it's throwing him toward the water to drown him. Sometimes it's throwing him into the fire to burn him. Mark literally says the demon is throwing this boy into these situations. Uh, can you imagine what it would be like to be a father in that situation? Constantly watching. Constantly. If his son is ever by a ledge, if his son is ever by some water, ever by some fire, he could be dead in an instant. Like... The fact that this boy is still alive demonstrates the incredible love of this father. He's obviously done everything. He's tried everything. He even brought him to these nine supposed exorcists. They couldn't help. He's desperate. Situation's as bad as it can be. 
And, and this father, he's not a bad guy. Mark actually gives us his exemplary prayer where he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. But Matthew doesn't emphasize that here because he, he's just showing us how powerless everyone is in this story to help. Matthew goes from the, the father and the son to then talk to us about the crowd in verse 17. He says, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted, unbelieving, perverse generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. It's, a, it's an interesting couple of phrases there. You, you, you hear the, the righteous indignation. You hear the righteous anger in Christ's voice as he's dealing with these faithless and perverse, twisted people. Uh, and as a sort of parenthetical thought here, if you read passages like this where Jesus is angry and he's condemning sinners, and that picture of who Jesus is doesn't jive, doesn't coincide with the idolatrous view of Jesus that you've created in your mind, you need to submit to the Scriptures and believe in the Jesus that, that the Scriptures reveal to us. The Jesus of the Bible loves His people, and the Jesus of the Bible hates sinners. The Jesus of the Bible will condemn sinners to hell. He is going to be the judge of those who reject Him. And speaking of idolatry, Jesus is actually quoting Deuteronomy 32.5 here. Faithless and twisted generation is the exact thing that Moses says to the people of Israel when they are worshiping the golden calf. And it's, of course, Jesus is going to respond this way because he's the second Moses, the Messiah, as revealed in Deuteronomy 18. But Jesus is angry because the people are unbelieving, because they're faithless, and that faithless unbelief is what causes them to be these perverse, twisted people. Look at everything wrongly. We're, we're wretched. We're liars. We don't trust the Lord. What's interesting, although I think there is some application to the crowd that Jesus is angry with here, I think when we think about the specific context of Matthew 17, Jesus is not principally frustrated with the crowd. He's mostly frustrated with his nine disciples who could not obey, who refused to obey. They're the faithless ones who failed. They're the ones who disobeyed the specific command to cast out this demon. As we read in Matthew 10, 8. Right, the Father even said it. I brought them to your disciples and they could not, would not obey. They wouldn't cast the demon out. And so let's think about the context again a little bit. Jesus just came down from the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus was just transformed in all his glory. He just saw Moses and Elijah. He just heard the voice of his father. He was just reminded that he had come to earth on a mission, a mission to die. And he's saying, how long, how much longer do you think I'm going to be with you? How much longer do you think I can help you in these situations? You see, in, in the context here, in this whole section, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the inevitable conclusion to this story, and that is Jesus is going to die, raised from the dead, but then ascend to the Father. 
his apostles weren't going to have him with them for very much longer. And we see this, this truth repeated five or six times in this context. Look with me real quick. Matthew 16, 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. Uh, the idea from that time on gives us the impression of a continual theme. And he's constantly reminding his disciples, I'm going to die. And the question is, how did the apostles respond to this? And we see it in verse 22, that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because you are opposing the will of God, which is that I need to die as a substitute for my people. Notice Matthew 17, verse 9. What are they talking about as they're coming down the mountain? Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Notice verse 12. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. What does Jesus say immediately after our paragraph? Verse 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And how do they take it? They were greatly distressed. So, see, the problem is they have this, this issue with a demon and they think, ah, eh, no big deal. We have Jesus with us. He'll deal with it. And Jesus is thinking, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to be with you in a couple of months. What are you going to do when I'm not here? Are you going to believe or are you just going to give up? Like, if you can't believe when my physical presence is a hundred yards away, what are you going to do when I go back to heaven? Well, as the narrative continues, in contrast with everyone else who is faithless and powerless, Jesus heals the void. He heals the boy easily and quickly. Matthew emphasizes what a non-event this is. Right? In verse 18, Jesus rebukes the demon, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Period. Done. No story. Nothing to see here. This was easy. This was not a difficult situation for Jesus. But here's the really, really important thing. Everyone is impotent. Everyone is powerless in this story except Jesus. And the question is, why? Why is it? And I think our natural reaction as Christians, because we know that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, who is eternal and omnipotent, is to say the disciples were powerless because they're humans. And Jesus is powerful because he's God. But that is actually not what the Holy Spirit tells us in this text. The reason they could not cast out the demon and the reason they should have been able to, the reason Jesus could, is because they had powerless faith and Jesus had real, genuine, persevering faith. Right? The disciples had the exact same delegated authority from Christ that God had given to Christ. We, we read that in Matthew 10.8. The Holy Spirit was empowering them in the same way that He was empowering the Son. The difference is that they had little faith. The trial came and they gave up. So the question we're left with is essentially the same one that we read in, in verse 19. 
The disciples came to Jesus privately, right, because they're ashamed in front of the crowd. They don't want to admit that they're the ones at fault. And they say, why could we not cast it out? What's, what's the difference? What's the problem? And that's where we see in the first part there of verse 20, he does not say to them, oh, because you're human. That's your problem. You couldn't cast out the demon because you're, you're human. You're, you're fallen. Now he says, you couldn't cast it out because of what? Because of your little faith. Okay. Now, as so often happens when we're reading the Bible, we, we come up with different, you know, come into different phrases, and we already have kind of an idea of what we think that means. And we, we take our preconceived definitions and notions, and we impose them upon the text. And we say, oh, little faith, I know what that is. Little faith is just like a small amount of faith. It's a small size of faith. But we really, we really need to be careful with defining words and phrases in the Bible by our own definitions. And instead, we need to go to the text itself, to the context of these books, and see, well, well what does little faith look like to Jesus? Because it doesn't really matter what little faith looks like to Josiah, what Josiah thinks little faith is. The question is, what does Jesus think little faith is? How does Jesus define it? And so I want to take you on a real quick little survey. Jesus, unfortunately for the disciples, uses this phrase little faith like a dozen times in the Gospels. It's kind of one of his favorite phrases to describe his disciples. And I want to show you what little faith actually means the answer, I hope, which will become obvious to you, is that to have a little bit of faith according to Jesus is only believing when it's easy to believe. It's little in quality, not little in quantity. It's poor quality faith, not small quantity of faith. So you notice in Matthew 8.23, Matthew 8.23, famous story, Jesus calms the storm, he gets into the boat, his disciples follow him, Behold, there arose a great storm, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Jesus is asleep. There's the trial. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Matthew 14, verse 24, a similar type story. Matthew chapter 14, verse 24. Remember that Jesus lets the disciples go ahead of him on the Sea of Galilee. He's going to walk past him, walking on the water. And in Matthew 14, verse 24, the boat's a long time away, beaten by the waves. The wind was against them. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now pause there. Does Peter have faith at this moment? I mean, have you ever walked on water? <laughs> right? I mean, Peter's exercising faith, yes or no? Yes, Peter is exercising faith, verse 30, but here comes the trial. But when he saw the wind, the wind's always there, but he notices it. 
When he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Good job, Peter! You were believing there for a little bit. You were doing good. You were walking on the water, dude. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you give up when the trial came? Continue on to Matthew 16, verse 5. I just want you to see that in every context, it's always the same. When the disciples reached the other side... They'd forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? Right, Jesus has fed the 5,000 at this point. He's fed the 4,000 at this point. And they get in the boat, and they're like, oh, we forgot dinner. And then what are we going to do? And Jesus is like, really? Like, you watch me feed 9,000 people, and you don't think I can provide for 13 inside this boat? It's inconceivable. And so you see little faith believes God when there's food on the table and there's work when there's money in the bank when there's clothes but when we can't see those things we cry out what shall we eat what shall we drink what shall we wear and Jesus says oh you of little faith your father knows you have need of all these things seek first his kingdom and I'll add the rest of that to you as well so the disciples, they had faith when the demons were fleeing. They had faith when the diseases were being healed. They had faith when they were walking on water. But when one demon didn't leave immediately, they just throw the towel in. They just give up. And you say, but, but Josiah, I mean, the demon didn't leave. Like, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to persevere. This happens to Jesus in the Gospels. Remember the story in Mark 5 of the man with the legion of demons? And Jesus tells the legion to leave, and the demon then has an entire conversation with Jesus after that. So the, the disciples' problem is not a lack of authority. It's that being alone, perhaps a little discouraged about not being on the mountain with Jesus, they just stopped believing, they stopped obeying the command that Jesus had given them. And we ought never, never to stop trusting God. Never stop believing that God is good and that He is completely and totally sufficient to give us the strength that we need to obey Him. There is never an excuse to disobey. There is never an excuse to stop obeying. So in summary, what makes us powerless to do the will of God, according to Jesus, is to have little faith. And little faith according to Jesus, is only believing when it's easy to do so. You think, okay, well, well that's, that's helpful, but what I really need to know is the opposite. You know, how do I have great faith? How do I obey in all circumstances? And that's the point we see in the last half of verse 20. Powerful faith, according to Jesus in verse 20, is 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So, of course, that begs the question, okay, so, so great faith is faith like a mustard seed. What's a mustard seed like? And once again, we're back to where we were with little faith. The question is not what you think a mustard seed is like. The question is not what Josiah thinks a mustard seed is like. The question is, what does Jesus think a mustard seed is like? And we have two options. And I don't normally like to give options like I'm in a seminary class. But we've got a lot of different Bible versions uh, amongst us. We've got some NASB, probably. We've got some ESV. I don't know what all the versions are. But this verse is translated in a couple of different ways that that kind of choose for us the two interpretive options. The one option is that Jesus is talking about the quantity of faith. That he's talking about the size of a mustard seed is very small. And I think that's in the NASB, even though they got a little number or letter there when it says size, and it says literally as a mustard seed. So the first option is it's quantity of faith. You need just a little bit and the second option is quality of faith, that you need faith that's like compared to a mustard seed. Well, let's, let's think about the first option really quickly, that he's talking about size, that he's talking about quantity of faith. If you have just a little bit of faith, you can move mountains. It's kind of back to Star, Mo Star Wars mode there, right? If you just, I mean, Faith is powerful stuff, guys. I mean, if you just have a eensy wincy bit, you know, as small as the smallest seed in Israel in those times, you can do amazing things. The problem with that interpretation is that really, really would, would contradict everything that Jesus is saying in this paragraph, right? Because Jesus just rebuked them very sternly, right? He just laid into them. He rebuked them. And what did he rebuke them for? What did they have? They had little faith. <laughs> so if Jesus is talking about quantity here, you see how this makes no sense? Where he says, your problem is you have little faith. But if you had even less, the smallest amount possible, the smallest size, the smallest quantity possible, you could move mountains. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But what if it means quality of faith? Let's ask ourselves, what does Jesus mean when he talks about a mustard seed? Has Jesus ever talked about mustard seeds before? Well, those who know your Bibles know that we just got to turn back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Lo and behold, we have the parable of the mustard seed where Jesus tells us exactly what the mustard seed is like. It's the exact same phrase in Greek as we have in Matthew 17. So, what is a mustard seed like according to Jesus? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. And what's this seed like? What well, is the smallest of all seeds? But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. In other words, it may start small, but what does it do? It grows and it perseveres and grows and grows and grows in spite of the wind, in spite of earthquakes, in spite of whatever it might face. 
Pastor MacArthur speaking about this verse says, Jesus seems to contradict himself. I'm referring to Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus seems to contradict himself, first rebuking the disciples for having small faith, and then telling them that even the smallest faith can move mountains. But as he made clear in the parable of the mustard seed, the seed does not represent littleness as such, but rather littleness that grows into greatness. Mustard seed faith is persistent faith. It grows and becomes productive because it never gives up. End of quote. So that brings us to our, our final phrase here. There's all these kind of interpretive landmines in this text that we got to see before we can get to the point. So if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, if you have faith that perseveres under trial, that doesn't give up just because it gets hard, Jesus says, you will say to, notice key word, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So first of all, is Jesus talking about moving a literal mountain? Uh, let's take a step back and remind, us, uh, remind ourselves sort of theologically that, that biblical faith is not sort of some mystical force that, that allows you to do whatever it is that you want. Uh, God is sovereign. God does what He wants in heaven and on earth. He does all things according to the counsel of his perfect will. And he does things for his glory, not the glory of man. Right? If a man moved a mountain, who would that bring glory to? And we'd be like, whoa, did you see what that guy could do? And it's interesting, I mean, Jesus even refused to do this sort of thing. I don't know if you've noticed that. The, the Pharisees multiple times in the Gospels ask him, to do some amazing sign from heaven to prove that he had the power to vanquish the Romans. And he refused to do it every single time. In Matthew 12, 38, they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it. Matthew 16, a chapter before where we are, the Sadducees and Pharisees come to test him. They ask him to show them a sign from heaven, like moving a mountain. Jesus' response is the same, Matthew 16, 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for that type of sign. Jesus is not talking about just moving whatever mountain you want, and, and you'll notice as we read it, he says, you will say to this mountain. What is this mountain? Remember in the context, Jesus ca just came down from he just came down from this mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. He, he's talking about the source of this trial. The, the nine are like, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus says, because you gave up. You had little faith. You didn't persevere and grow like mustard seed faith. Because if you had a faith that persevered, nothing would stop you from obeying me. And you could see that mountain that was blocking your view of God's goodness and His will for your life, and you could have just moved it easily. It wouldn't be hard. Jesus is not talking about doing some physical sign that would bring glory to us. And that's confirmed by the fact that when you read the Old and New Testament, we see that 
There's a common Jewish saying that we find throughout Scripture, moving a mountain. We see it in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. We see it in Isaiah a number of times as well. Moving a mountain just referred to doing something that seemed to be impossible. Something that looked impossible. And that's confirmed by the way the text continues that Jesus says nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is saying if you have faith like a mustard seed, a faith that doesn't quit, Nothing's going to be impossible for you. He said, just how you don't understand. Like my, my wife was just diagnosed with cancer. You're going to come up here and tell me that? Like you're going to come tell me that I just need to believe? You're going to come tell me in Romans 8.28 that I should rejoice and take joy in my trials? That's impossible. That's impossible because of you, your little faith. I think... Probably the, the best way to illustrate that, that little faith is a faith that gives up and great faith is a faith that perseveres is actually to look at the text, the paragraph, in which Jesus commends someone for the opposite. The time when Jesus tells someone that they have great faith. I want you to notice the contrast between what he says to the Canaanite woman in Matthew 16 and what he just said his disciples. Forgive me, Matthew chapter 15. So if you turn back to Matthew 15, verse 21, the contrasts here are just so remarkable. Because we're looking at a, a man, a Jewish man, with a son who's demon-possessed. And here in, in Matthew 15, verse 21, we're going to have a Canaanite woman with a daughter. Notice what it says, Matthew 15, 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's north of Israel. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he, Jesus, did not answer her a word. Right, so you have this very similar situation. In Matthew 17, we have a father with his demon-possessed son. Here we have a mother with a demon-possessed daughter. Differences are that he was Jewish, she is Canaanite. Interesting thing is she travels to meet Jesus, and she, being a despised Canaanite foreigner, calls him Lord. She addresses him with the Jewish messianic title, Son of David. So... She gets something. There, there's, we see great evidence of faith here, of some theology. She's desperate. Her daughter's severely oppressed by a demon. She, she gets to the Messiah, who she trusts can heal her daughter. That was his prophesied mission. And as Chrysostom said, the incarnate word has no word. She gets nothing from Jesus. So the disciples, as we continue reading, the disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. I mean, that's some compassion. Gives us the idea that she is persevering. She didn't cry out one time. She's bothering the disciples because she's crying out. She's continuing to cry out. Verse 24, he answered, I was only sent the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
In other words, at last, this Canaanite woman finds the Savior. She finds the healer, the Messiah, her hope. And he finally, after ignoring her, apparently, for some time, he finally opens his mouth to address her, and he says, I wasn't sent to help dirty Canaanite goats like you. I'm only here to serve the sheep of the house of Israel. Wow. Most Christians at this point would say, okay, I think God is closing that door. Right? That's, code, that's Christian code word for I'm giving up. Not this woman. Verse 25. She came and bowed before him. She knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread. It's just so intense. And throw it to the dogs. I mean, can you imagine being this woman? That you finally get to Christ. And first he ignores you. Then he calls you a goat. And then when you continue, he says, it's not right for me to give bread to a dog like you. I mean, it, it almost just takes your breath away, doesn't it? Like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you making this woman go through this? If there has ever been in the history of the world a mountain-sized trial standing in someone's path, this woman has one. If there was ever an impossible situation, she's in it. It appears to be impossible. Not even God is willing to help her. It would have been really easy for her to think, well, I mean, I thought that the Messiah had come to help us, to heal us, to save us. Maybe he's just not quite as good as the prophets foretold. Maybe my Canaanite friends are right, and the Jews are a bunch of stuck-up, bigoted, arrogant people. Now she perseveres. She perseveres. Verse 27, she says, yes, Lord. She's agreeing, I'm a dog. I'm a goat. I'm not worthy of your grace. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall on their master's table. Jesus says, oh woman, great, great is your faith. Why was her faith great? Because she persevered. She persevered in the face of trials. I mean, what, what an example. And when we think about a dog, I, I think it's actually a really good illustration of what great faith looks like. I mean, you think of a dog like a pit bull. I mean, a pit bull grabs onto something, and you can forget about it. I mean, you kick that thing, you hit that thing, and it just sends more adrenaline to its jaws to just grab on. And that's what this woman does. I mean... She just grabs hold to the promise of God that the Messiah had been sent to heal, and she will not stop believing that. In spite of all the difficulties, in spite of all the trials. The greatest example of faith is obviously our Lord Jesus Christ, who despite all the trials, all the difficulties of his life, you know, gets to the end of his life, begs with God, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but will not stop obeying. And goes to the cross, 
regardless of how he felt or how the situation looked. It's interesting. It's, it's almost like faith is required in greater degrees when things don't go our way, right? I understand you guys have recently gone through Hebrews 11. Right? What marked all these men? What, what marked Rahab? What, what marked this group of people that we call heroes of the faith? is that they did not receive what was promised. They, deli- they died believing that God was good, even though they didn't get the promises fulfilled in their lifetime. And I, I, I know that you've seen this, but I, I just want to bring it fresh into our minds really quickly. In Hebrews 11, there's a really fascinating contrast here that I think ultimately answers the question that we asked in the introduction. We're going to read Hebrews 11:33 and on. The question was, who has more faith? The father who has a son who is healed or the father who has a son who dies? Who has more faith? And here's how the author of Hebrews answers that question for us. Hebrews 11:33. Through faith Some of these people conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins and sheep, skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Did you notice (laughs) there's a phrase that's repeated twice, once in verse 34 and once in verse 37. Some, by faith, verse 34, escaped the edge of the sword. Verse 37, some, by faith, were killed by what? By the sword. So some, by faith, escaped the edge of the sword. And some, by faith, died by the sword. What was the difference? Well, according to the author of Hebrews, there's nothing different about their faith. One escaped by faith, the other died by faith. The difference is their mission was different. God had a different mission for their life. But the one escaped by faith, the other died by faith. Bottom line is that God, for reasons that we cannot pretend to understand, His wisdom is beyond our fathoming, wants some of us to have financial stability and health, and family, and God, for reasons we can't understand, takes all those things away from some of us. That's not the question. The question is, what are you going to do with what God gives you? Circumstances don't determine who's godly and who's not godly. That's determined by how you respond to God's will in your life. (laughs) 
So we see, especially in verses like James 1, Romans 8, 28, you know, there's all these passages that give us these commands that just seem impossible. And maybe we're not like the disciples with this command to cast out demons. We live in a different generation, a different time. We're not in the apostolic era. We now have the Bible. We have everything we need for life and godliness. So, so God hasn't commanded me to cast out demons. But he has commanded me to obey him. He has given me a lot of other commands. He's commanded me to consider it all joy when I go through trials. He tells me to view it as good when he works in my life. All things are working out for the good of those who love him. And there are so many times in our life when we're confronted with a situation where we say, impossible. God, this is not good. It is not good for my son to be born this way. It is not good for my wife to be diagnosed with this thing. It is not good for my parents to be struggling through this. And it's this mountain-sized trial that completely blocks our view of the goodness and the greatness of God. And the question is, what are you going to do in that situation? Are you going to give up? Are you going to tenaciously grab on to the promises of Scripture and believe that God is who He says that He is, no matter what he does in your life. The promise of Jesus here is that if you do that, if you persevere, if you grab onto his promises and obey him no matter what, you'll be able to move any of those mountains. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing in the context here, nothing in regards to you obeying the commands of God. Nothing will be impossible. Well, I want to wrap up here just with a few uh, kind of loose ends that I left um, that maybe some of you are wondering, and then I'll, I'll wrap this up with a conclusion. A lot of you, depending on your Bible version, have a verse 21. Some of you maybe even notice that in your Bible you don't have a verse 21, and it moves from verse 20 to 22. So just real quick, this line about um, it's not in my Bible, but to my memory, it's something about, you know, this kind of demon only comes out with prayer and fasting. So that's something that Jesus says in other Gospels, specifically in Mark, and kind of found its way over time uh, in later manuscripts into Matthew, but was not original to Matthew. That's why some of your Bibles do not have it. Um, another question that you might be asking is, okay, J Josiah, I mean, I think you've, you've kind of convinced me that that mustard seed faith is persevering in faith, but what about, like, there, there are other Bible verses, right, that, that give us the impression that, like, the godly person who plays, prays with faith is more likely to have his prayers answered positively than the person who does not have faith, like the unrighteous person. Why is that? And I think the clear answer to that, theologically, is just the fact that the immature person who is carnal in his thinking, who has a little faith, who's maybe new to Christianity, is asking for a girlfriend or a new car or, or for things that it's just, it's unlikely that those things are going to align with God's will for that person. And the mature Christian who loves Christ and loves God's glory and is, for be is begging for God to glorify himself and to do his will, 
the, the godly believer who's, who's asking for strength to preach the gospel, who's asking uh, for sanctification, who's asking for the people of God to be encouraged. Like those types of prayers, obviously, God is going to answer because they align with his revealed will and his desires. Last loose end. So, Josiah, I was really curious about this whole demon possession thing. You didn't really talk about it. How can we apply that today? Well, just real quick, I don't want to get into that much, but just remember, just remember, we don't have a command like the apostles did. They had the gift of healings, healings plural, that gave them the capability of healing any sick physical sickness and healing any spiritual sickness. Peter, they brought crowds to Peter and the apostles and they healed everyone with diseases and everyone that was demon-possessed. It's the gift of healing that did all of those things. So I always tell people who think that they can cast out demons, like if you can raise someone from the dead, if you can take someone up out of a wheelchair and heal them in that way, then I'll know that you have the gift of healings and can also cast out demons. But if you cannot, then I'd be really careful because God prohibits us from talking to demons. God never gives us the command to cast out demons nor instructs us how to do so. Um, what he does tell us is that everything we need for life and godliness is here. And if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And if you are concerned that someone might have a demon, then you preach the gospel to the person. You don't need to be talking to a demon. You preach the gospel to the mind and will of that person. And the gospel is the power of God to save. It doesn't say, cast out a demon and then you can preach the gospel and maybe they'll get saved. It says... The gospel is the power of God to save, and that's what we can trust in. Well, to, to wrap up here then, Jesus tells his disciples to cast out demons, but when the going got tough, they just gave up. And so the question is, what, what are we going to do when we hear pray without ceasing? When we hear rejoice always, and then the trial comes. Now, what do you mean rejoice always? I can't rejoice in this circumstance. Yes, you can. Don't talk that way. It's not charismatic or word of faith or craziness to, to remind ourselves that God gives us power, the power to obey Him. He says nothing will be impossible for you. There is no situation in which you can say, I just can't do this. God promises abundant power through his spirit for each and every one of us to obey his will in every circumstances. We have the power to do what seems impossible, to obey the scriptures at impossible odds, to trust him in life and in death and health and in sickness, no matter what. That's what God demands from us, and that's what we Oh, him. Let's pray. Father, your grace is always sufficient. Your power is abundant. Your will has been revealed to us. And we ask that you would grant us the faith and strength, the will 
to obey you no matter the circumstances, that we would grab on to your promises, we would hold on to your word and persevere and love you and trust you no matter what. You are good and you deserve everything that we could possibly give to you. We thank you for Jesus who purchased our salvation, who gave us forgiveness and righteousness. And it's for his glory and in his merit we come to you and ask you these things. Amen.